just a reminder this morning coming into church uh, how blessed we are by people who serve in different ways in this church. Came in on a freezing cold morning. There's uh, people setting up um, to serve coffee. It's about five degrees out there. Uh, we got people standing in the rain to welcome us as we uh, come in in the car park. Um, we had a bit of an interesting one this morning. We've got a new worship roster that only went out this week. So our sound desk and data people didn't quite realise they were on. So uh, no one turned up for those two uh, important gigs. And so we called up uh, Lloyd and Tim at the last minute. And uh, Tim shared with me uh, when he got here, because he said, I'll be there in 20 minutes. And uh, he's been performing in a theatre production he said because of that, he was all hyped up. He didn't get to bed till about five o'clock last night. And he got the phone call and just says, I'll be there in 20 minutes. And uh, that's pretty good. Um, it's not about, uh, you know, uh, praising people. We're here to praise God. But it's also is valuable to acknowledge when people serve in ways that are sacrificial. And also, I, I do want to add to what Nat said. The generosity of the church poured out for Hohidii and then a few months ago for Baptist World Aid has been really wonderful to see uh, that in, in addition to uh, the offerings that support the ministry of the church, when people get an opportunity and they're just like, yeah, we just, there's an opportunity. We want to we give to this. That is just awesome. Uh, I'm going to jump straight into the passage. It's actually, uh, uh, I haven't preached for, uh, well, I've been away for three weeks and then, then I came back last Sunday was Hohidii and the Sunday before I preached in the evening, not in the morning. So it's been um, something like five or six weeks since I've preached here in the morning, which for me is, is like an epically long time without preaching. I've missed uh, uh, preaching here. Uh, whether you've missed my preaching is another question. <laughs> I hope so, um, but it's a, it's a blessing and a privilege to come and preach the Word of God uh, this morning, as it always is, but particularly having had a break from doing so. So I'm going to jump straight into this passage, and then we are going to um, start to unpack it. Uh, Romans chapter 11, verse 33 uh, to 36, if you've got a Bible, uh, you can get that out. If you don't have one, it's going to be up on the screen. It's a very short little passage. The Apostle Paul uh, writes, Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God! How unsearchable His judgments and His paths beyond tracing out! Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counsellor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from Him and through Him and for Him are all things... To Him be the glory forever. Amen. Let me uh, unpack this passage. Um, the Apostle Paul here uh, has for 11 chapters in Romans, as we've been going through over the past few months, he has been unpacking uh, probably the most, well, undoubtedly, uh, the, the most glorious and brilliant and uh, profound exp ex uh, explanation Got to get my preaching words back together here. Uh, explanation of the gospel ever written. And he's written something that has stood through the test of time, through 2,000 years, as something that continues to feed and, and impact uh, people today. Uh, millions, billions of people have been profoundly changed by coming to know the message that Paul declares in Romans, through Romans chapters 1 to 11. 
the presentation of the gospel that is unmatched. And now having reached the end of that passage, having explained justification by faith and salvation by grace and uh, uh, freedom in Christ and life in the Spirit, and having gone through all of that and having gone through 9 to 11 where he wrestles with what place, how is it that the Gentiles, those who aren't Jewish, who weren't the people of God, have become the people of God, and where do the Jewish people fit into all of that? And having explained all of this, he reaches the, the pivot point in the book of Romans where it goes from the ex- explanation of the gospel to how we should live in light of the gospel. And he hits this point where he just stops and he basically bursts out into song or into praise. It's almost like, having reached this point, I can't go on to the next bit without just declaring how amazing God is. And uh, so one theologian said this, he said, like a mountain climber who reaches the summit of an Alps ascent, the apostle turns and contemplates. Depths are at his feet, but waves of light illuminate them, and there spreads all around an immense horizon which his eye commands. He kind of reaches the top of the mountain, and he looks around, and he just breaks out in praise. I don't know if you've ever climbed a, a tall mountain before. Anyone climbed a mountain? Yep, some of you are thinking Mount Lofty counts, so I'm not counting Mount Lofty in that. <laughs> Half of you are out. Um, uh, the, probably the tallest and most difficult climb I've ever done is in Indonesia when I was vid- visiting Hohidiai. We climbed a mountain or a volcano called Dukono, which is one of the most active volcanoes in the world. It's been continually erupting for the last 30 years. And depending, you can only climb it on certain days when the seismic activity is low, okay? So uh, we climbed this. Um, did you climb this too? Yeah, yeah, Mark, here, climbed this with me. We climbed this mountain and we left at, we woke up at two o'clock in the morning and we drove there. We started climbing it at four o'clock in the morning and it was the hardest climb I've ever done. We walked for hours and hours and hours and then finally we got to the point where we started to climb the actual uh, volcano bit of the volcano. There's probably a proper name for that. Caldera? Whatever it is, cone, okay. Uh, it's probably not the scientific name, but uh, we started climbing the, the cone part of it, which is like made up of all the volcanic ash, and we're climbing and climbing and climbing. We get to the very top, and unbelievable moment, like looking inside a volcano that is erupting, and then turning and looking out and being the highest point on the island and looking out and seeing everything around you and realizing that this volcano has the capacity to kind of shoot rocks in the air that might land on top of your head and the power of that and how small I was and how powerful this thing was and how incredible the view was and all of this stuff, it was, it was a moment in my life that I won't forget. Paul is having one of those moments. What he sees, what he feels, what impacts him about the gospel is something that to him and the something that is of greater power than a volcano. The view is more expansive than to stand at a mountain peak and look out. If he captures the fullness of 
the gospel and breaks into praise, into poetry, into song. So this passage is known as a doxology. That's a kind of the term they give it. Uh, doxa is the, is, the, is the Greek word for glory and logia is the Greek word for saying. So, so speaking or saying glory, doxology. And through the Bible, you'll see uh, at times there are these passages where uh, at the end of a psalm or the end of a passage, there is this declaration of praise. It was interesting last Sunday, uh, some of you were here in the morning, uh, we were at Verdun and we had the combined service and heard the Huhidii choir sing and, and a lot of people I know were just really touched by that. Um, not as many were here Sunday, well there's many here Sunday, not, not many of you were here. Sunday night uh, we were here and they had a little more time and space, so they shared a little more, they sang a little more, but at the end of that time of sharing, we went into an extended worship time and it was unbelievable. It was unbelievable. There was a room 100% packed to the absolute rafters. And so I was at the front and I had the Hohidii Choir here and they weren't just, just singing their choir, they were worshipping passionately. And the, the congregation were worshipping passionately. It was almost like out of all of those testimonies and out of the sense of joy that was coming from the Hohidii people, that when they were given the opportunity just to worship freely and when we were given the opportunity to join in, something happened and it just went off. It was like a, it was like a fire. And I'm telling you, like uh, we had the, the choir assistant who'd been traveling with them for the whole month and we're getting to the point where we're thinking we need to finish this, but everyone's like, wanting to worship more and she rushes down and she says, Mark, we haven't had anything like this happen in the entire seven-week tour of Australia. It was, it was something else. And uh, I, I just kind of, I long for those moments when people are so moved by what God has done and what God is doing and His greatness that, that worship just breaks out in people, this, this praise just breaks out in people. How I long to see a church so hungry to know God and to experience God and to go deeper into the gospel that we are moved to the point where we are just blown away by God, like Paul is here, and worship Him just out of what we've experienced. Like, uh, when was the last time? When was the last time you were so powerfully moved by God that you just broke out in praise to God, right? Like we sing worship every Sunday morning and, and, and at the end of the sermon we sing, but sometimes that's just, we're just singing along, aren't we? Sometimes we're distracted, sometimes our mind is elsewhere, but sometimes God's moving and so our worship or our singing is worship. You can sing a worship song without it actually being worshipped from the heart. What I long to see in our church is that God would move us to the point where we are worshippers. And Jesus, in that moment, in, uh, I think uh, in John, he meets the, um, the Samaritan woman and she says to him, you know, uh, you know are we going to be worshipping on the mount? Where are we, which mountain are we going to be worshipping? He says, it's not about whether you worship in this temple or in that place. He says, there will come a time when, when the followers of me, are gonna, they're going to worship in spirit and in truth. 
They're going to worship out of the Spirit, and they're going to worship out of, out of the truth of the gospel and out of what God has done inside them so that their worship is passionate. May we grow to be a church, church that worships in spirit and in truth and passionately, not just in our singing, but in how we live out our lives. Paul goes on to say, Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Let me explore with you uh, what he's speaking about here, the depths of the riches, uh, some versions say of the wisdom, uh, uh, oh, the depths of the riches and of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, some say of, some say and. So we can explore riches, wisdom and knowledge. Let me talk about riches. Through this passage, through this book, Paul has repeatedly talked about the riches of the gospel. In chapter 2, verse 4, he speaks about the riches of God's kindness forbearance and patience. In chapter 9, he talks about the riches of his glory. In chapter 10, he says um, that God richly blesses. He says, as the scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame, for there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. So we see that there's the riches of his kindness, the riches of his glory, and there's a richness of his blessing to us. If we go to other parts of Scripture, I think immediately of Ephesians, but because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It's by grace you have been saved. And Ephesians chapter 3 He says, although I am less than the least of the Lord's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ. The riches of God. The riches of God. How sad is it that we in our Western world are in a situation where we have around us so much material riches that it actually draws us away from the riches of God. We settle ourselves in worldly riches and thinking about them and worrying about them and chasing them and then enjoying the kind of uh, pleasures that they bring, that they can actually distract us from the riches of God's mercy and the riches of God's grace and the riches of God's goodness to us. Isn't that crazy? But God's riches are so deep that uh, that Paul speaks of the depth of his riches. You know, the parable of the sower says... Uh, that some seed was, was sown, but there was, there was thorns that actually choked it out. And those thorns were the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desire for things that come in and choke out the Word. There's a danger for us as believers that we've got to guard ourselves against. And in some ways, that's why it's so wonderful to see a generous response when people are giving, because that actually says that we're not holding so tightly to money. And, and just relying and depending upon that. Jesus said, it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of the needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Believe me, that's not because God loves rich people any less, but it's because the power of riches draws us away from the riches of God. When, uh, when I um, sometimes uh, I'm volunteering at the footy and um, at the end of the game, um, uh, if anyone's been involved in junior footy, uh, we hand out, there's a packet of lolly snakes is a highlight of the, of the footy game, right? And so those kids have never, they, they line up quicker than anything and they're pushing to get in line because 
they want to get their uh, lolly snake at the end of the footy game and those who get it first might know that there's going to be a few left over at the end that they can come back for a second one and they just they just crowd around and they line up and at the end you've just got to say that's it there's done there's no more I've run out okay because otherwise they'll start attacking you um, but the riches of God's grace the riches of God's mercy the riches of God are not limited. They're not limited. He doesn't run out. He doesn't get to a point where his riches are exhausted. The depths of the riches of God are inexhaustible in their nature. The wisdom of God. Let's talk about the wisdom of God, the depths of the wisdom of God. 1 Corinthians says this, says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to, those of us who, but to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? You know what strikes me about that passage is that that passage was written 2,000 years ago. Because that seems a passage for our time. Don't we live in an age where there are the philosophers of our age who have kind of declared that their wisdom is greater than the wisdom of God? Or that these days we've risen to a level of such wisdom that we don't need God? Isn't that the, the message of our world these days? Like, you know, believing in God, that's... a that's such an old-fashioned concept. That's for, the, that's for the foolish or for the weak. Those of us who are, are wise have realised that we have risen above that. that. That's the message of our age, is it not? Uh, but, but God says, you know, He's going to destroy the wisdom of the wise. And He calls out, where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where's the philosopher of this age? God has destroyed the wisdom of this world. C.S. Lewis wrote a book, um, obviously a number of years ago now, called God in the Dock. And in that book, he writes about this growing uh, reality where uh, previously people understood that, uh, that God was a judge and they feared God and they accepted that one of the realities of life is that we would stand before God and He would judge us. But now, he saw there was a changing philosophy in the world where God is in the dock. And we set ourselves up as the judge who uh, look down on God and say uh, from on high, God, we are here to decide whether we think you're okay. We are here to judge you on the way you make decisions and the way uh, your ways and your means and how you're going about things. And he saw that back uh, probably in the 20s or 30s or 40s, I'm not sure when he wrote that, uh, he saw that happening in his time, but how much more has that even escalated in our day? But Paul here declares, Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom of God. And then he goes on to talk about the knowledge of God. And if we're going to try to understand the wisdom and the knowledge of God, we've got to come to this word where uh, we understand that God is omniscient and omnipresent. Omnipresent meaning God is in all places at all time, and omniscient meaning God knows all things. In fact, God knows all things through all of history, 
and he knows the end from the beginning and he knows all people's thoughts. The Bible says he discerns our thoughts from afar and he knows all circumstances and he knows the number of hairs on our head and he knows every thought, thought by every person at all times through all of history. And then he weaves the whole plan of history and everyone's story and every plan of every nation and civilization and regime and individual and community and family. And he weaves his salvation plan through the whole of history and fits it together. And if I was to sort of do God's span of history... And, and then mark out our lives within that, you would understand that his span of history would be like a, 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 a ball of uh, twine that's, that if I held it at one end, you could, you could run it out to the end of the car park and then you could keep, if it was long enough, running that, uh, you know, with, if every centimetre represented 100 years, you could run that out to the car park and, you know, you get the point. Eternity is a very long time. That's what I'm trying to say. Um, but our part in that is, is this fleeting moment. And yet, we're trying to understand how God, God's plans and God works when we are so fixed in our moment and in our time and in our thinking and you've got this infinite God who's omniscient and omnipresent and eternal and knows the end from the beginning and weaves it all together. We talk about God's plans but God has plans that feed into plans, that lead to plans, that result in plans. And He somehow knits it together like the most ridiculously complex tapestry you've ever seen. Like, get this story. Last, sun, last Friday night, and Sunday night as well, last Friday night, a young lad came and shared his story to the youth group. And he's an absolute legend from Hohidii. His story is that as a child, he received severe burns in his village. They didn't know what to do with him, so they just put him in a dark room for about a year with no painkillers. Eventually, someone came along, a Christian missionary, and found him in this most incredibly remote village. They took him to Hohidii, where he'd received huge treatment and he was able to go to America and receive uh, surgery to, I mean, his, his chin was fused with his body and incredible uh, uh, burns um, and he's had this incredible treatment and then he ends up being part of the Hohidii community, which ends up being part of the choir, which ends up coming here and speaking to the young people of this church and maybe because of what he says, he impacts a young person who actually comes to know Jesus, who ends up being a Christian leader or a pastor in some way, who speaks to someone else in some camp or some situation in some other place, which impacts their story. Do you get what, I, what I'm talking about? And God's weaving from this tiny isolated village in Indonesia, uh, this boy ends up witnessing to people at Hills Baptist Church in Allgate. I mean, how crazy is that? And that impacts people who one day will go on to impact people somewhere else and somehow God holds this all together. Oh, the riches, oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable His judgments and His paths beyond tracing out. And then we get these three questions that, uh, that mirror the statements made about his riches, wisdom and knowledge. First is this, who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has known the mind of the Lord? The answer is 
No one. And who has been his counsellor? The answer is no one. And who has ever given to God that God should repay him? The answer is no one. And then he concludes with this. For from him and through him and for him are all things. For from him and through, through him and for him are all things. God is the source from which all things come. God is the means or the agent by which, uh, through which all things happen. And God is the goal towards which all things are moving. He's the source, he's the means, and he is the goal. For from him and through him and for him are all things. And, and, and in response to all that Paul has proclaimed in chapters 1 to 11, and as he unpacks this reality about the greatness of God, he concludes with the only appropriate response you could ever say, which is this, to him be the glory forever. Amen. Let me draw a conclusion from this and how this applies to our lives. First thing I want to say is this, is that God is bigger than you think. God is bigger than you think. In past generations, I kind of mentioned this before, but I believe in past generations, people grew up uh, with this holy fear of God. When they walked into the house of God, they would be like silent and reverent. People feared God. People viewed God to be distant and powerful and a powerful judge, and they knew they stood under His judgment. And there's something in that where they kind of got it wrong because they kind of missed the love of God and the intimacy with God and the presence of God, but there's actually something they got right. And what's happened is in recent generations, there's been a swing back and we've actually gone, no, God is loving and, and kind and present with us and speaks to us and, and God wants an intimate relationship with us. And, and, but in, and in rediscovering that truth of God, I believe we've lost something of God. At the young adults camp earlier this year, we had uh, Mike Mills, who's the executive um, pastor for uh, Baptist churches in South Australia. And he came along as the speaker. And I thought to myself, I was like, interested to see how this would, would go, right? Because Mike's, um, you know, he's not a young, cool guy. Uh, you know, he's even less cool than me. Um, but he came along and uh, he was awesome. And he engaged with the young adults. But one of the things that really, really impacted, it was almost like the moment from the camp that really stood out, was that he quoted uh, a C.S. Lewis quote from Narnia that spoke about the power and the might of God. And um, the quote is this, it's taken from the Narnia series, which as you know is a sort of an allegory of the gospel and Aslan is, is a lion in this story and uh, he represents Jesus. And there's a, a group of children who have gone into this kind of fantasy land, Narnia, and they've met uh, some beavers. If you've not heard this story, it's going to sound kind of weird. Um, they've, met, they've met some beavers and the beavers are now going to uh, introduce them to Aslan. And um, we get this quote, which I think Tim's going to bring up. Lucy says this, she says, is he a man? Aslan, a man, said Mr. Beaver sternly, certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood 
and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of the beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, Susan said, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking and they're either braver than most or, or else just silly, then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Course he isn't safe, but he is good. He's the king, I tell you. And that quote impacted a lot of our young adults. And I thought to myself, why has that had such an impact? And I think it's because they've been taught about a God who's too small and too safe. Not a God who is all-powerful and a God who is the judge of the earth. You know what Re uh, Revelation chapter 19 says about Jesus? It says this image of Jesus. Again, it's, a, it's an image. It says, Then I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider, which is Jesus, is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood. It's not his own blood, by the way. And his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. And coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword, which is to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. That is the Jesus that I want to follow. We've made Jesus to be a bit like a puppy dog. My puppy is a loving, kind creature that just is so thankful any time I want to play with him. That's how we've made God out to be. Just this kind of God who's just so keen for you to hang out with him. And when you do, he's just keen to give you a big face lick and wrap his arms around you. That's kind of maybe pushing it too far. Um, but you know what I'm saying here? God is bigger. His ways are bigger. His, his, the riches of his mercy and grace are bigger than you can possibly imagine. And Nick, if you're going to come into this role, which you are, because hopefully we'll vote you in, the charge, the charge that you will have is to make God big to our young people. Make people realize how big is the grace of God. How powerful is God? Don't let God be small. God is bigger. So the first question I ask is this. Do you need to rediscover how great is our God? However great you think He is, He is greater. Secondly, because of that, may you live boldly because the victory is the Lord's. Because I don't know if you've been watching the news, but every time there's something around Christianity in our media, in our news at the moment, it seems like God is losing. It seems like the church is losing. It seems like Christianity is losing. 
every decision that goes before the law courts that seems to in any way relate to Christian belief, morality, rights, it just seems that we're going, it's going against us, right? You can begin to think, what's going on here? Is God in charge still? Is God in control? Is God big? Is He mighty? Is He powerful? Do you know that through Christian history, most of the time, followers of Jesus have been up against it in this world? A lot of the time, Christians have been persecuted. But through all of it, God has been working His plan and He has never failed to be a God who is victorious and is going to win the ultimate victory. In fact, He's won it in Christ Jesus and now He's just just playing out history to win the final battle. God is bigger than we think and we need to live boldly because victory is the Lord's. Even when it comes to Alpha, how many of us have thought, maybe I'll invite someone, but we didn't do it because kind of like a little bit of fear. Believe me, we can live boldly and we can live courageously as followers of Jesus because our God is bigger and His plans are greater and His, His, His riches are deeper and His wisdom and knowledge is greater and more unsearchable than we can ever comprehend. Thirdly, let me draw this conclusion. This is a key one. You can trust Him in uncertainty. And part of being a follower of Jesus is to accept that His ways are unsearchable and that His paths beyond tracing out. And there are going to be times when you don't have the answer. And you need to actually give up your need to know the answer and the need to be able to explain everything away and know that you can actually just trust God in uncertainty. Life is going to be full of uncertainty. Some of you right now are facing situations where you go, I cannot explain why this is happening. I don't understand what's going on. It makes no sense to me whatsoever. And this little passage here, I believe, is given so that in uncertainty, you might still be able to declare, for from Him and through Him and for Him are all things, to God be the glory forever. Amen. We used to sing a song, that sounds like the end of my sermon, I've got a tiny bit left. We used to sing a song uh, back at Unley Park uh, when I was a pastor there. And I don't know if you know this one. We've never sung it here. It's a song that takes the words of Job from Job. And it says this, Who can know the mind of our Creator? Who can speak of wisdom, of wonders yet unseen? Who can reach the heights of understanding to play the notes of wisdom's melody? Who has weighed the dust of every mountain? Who has walked the mysteries of the deep? Who has laid the earth on its foundation? And who conducts the waves upon the sea? And then it would have this chorus that just said, I stand in awe of you. I stand in awe of you. So glorious and true. I stand in awe of you. You know, it says, you have seen the end from the beginning. Talks about how God knows our situation and our story And we would sing that song and every time we would, I could look around and there would be be people in the congregation with tears in their eyes or weeping because the circumstance they were in, they couldn't explain. The situation that they were facing and experiencing, they had no 
answer for, they couldn't reason and, and, and make sense of. But in the midst of that, they could say this, I stand in awe of you, God. And I trust in you in uncertainty because I know you love me and are with me and are greater than my circumstance and will win a victory over it through Jesus. So, for from him and through him and for him, that was a good ending, so I'm going to finish with that again. Are all things to him be the glory forever. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from Hills Baptist Church. To find out more or to hear other great content, find us at hillsbaptist.com or on your podcast app.